Shall we begin? Let's begin now. It's No Accounting for Taste, the podcast for accountants from accountingweb.co.uk. I'm Tom Herbert, editor of the site, and today we are going to be talking Lorraine Kelly and IR35, getting to your first 100,000 and making accountants digital. Should firms microchip their staff? And we'll be doing so in the company of our fine panel, practice editor Richard Hattersley. Hi, Richard. Hello, Tom. And I'm proud to say I have been uh, microchipped as well. So. <laughs> That's cool. us. I was dragged into this podcast today. That's one of the first things we did. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, joining me, and the, the, the unchipped uh, business editor, Francois Bardenhorst. Yeah, but I, I mean, unchipped, but I am looking forward to my chipped future. Uh, I don't want to be able to leave the business premises. I think that's a podcast extra. Podcast Friends extra. chipping. Chipping. Chip me. Chip me like a dog. There we go. And uh, later on, we'll be dialing up Sonny Milton Keynes to talk tax with Rebecca Cave. For now, let's jump straight into the headlines, the most read stories this week. Number three, critics call for personal allowance to be scrapped. So, Fran, this is your story. Tell us more. Yeah, so it was one that was a little bit out of left field, um, literally, because the NEF is quite a left-wing think tank. It's one of John McDonald's sort of um, intellectual backers. But um, yeah, it, it started started quite a debate on the site, quite an interesting idea that they have. So basically, um, it's this concept that the personal allowance isn't uh, really working um, as intended. So the whole it's, it's sort of couched in this, um, this language of, of, of taking people out of income tax entirely but in terms of the actual value that it creates for people it's not it's not um, actually working so the, the NEF stats um, show that um, the trouble with personal allowance is as, as sort of at the extreme ends of the scale so um, in 2019-20 um, the allowance would be worth £6,500 in reduced tax liabilities for the 10% highest income families but worth just 600 quid for the poorest obviously mm. just because of proportional sort of um, taxation and so on so what they're proposing is to scrap it all together and to just replace with a 48 uh, pounds and 8p a week a sort of dividend which is paid uh, what they call the national allowance every week mm. uh, to every adult with a, um, a national insurance number who earns under 125,000 pounds a year um, middle income people will be no worse or better off, really. Um, it's, it'll pretty much be even Stevens. The the sort of the tax savings that you get from the personal allowance of someone who earns twenty five thousand pounds a year is two thousand five hundred, and with the forty eight pounds, you'll get about two thousand five hundred and sixteen p. It's extra sixteen p. So no, not not to be sniffed at. You better be saving mm-hmm. that. Um, but yeah, so like it's really about making it that you can. Um, really roll out savings to the poorest people um, in Britain um, and they estimate if I can re- recall correctly um, this would bring about 200,000 people out of poverty um, <clears throat> obviously there's a there's a whole roiling debate in the comments so uh, feel free to dip in there if you if you feel so inclined yeah there's a good old scrap in there wasn't yeah, there yeah. about the various system pieces I enjoyed this one from uh, I really should know this but um, one of our accounting web members who said I'm, I'm for it in principle I've gone from living in a poop hole on benefits to having a nice big house and plenty of cash so uh, you know they were sort of 
experienced both ends of the spectrum, as yeah. it were. He was saying this, this, he'd done the calculations, it would cost him £5,000 a year, which we can easily afford. So, yeah. you know. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 I think for me, really, it's as far as the idea goes, I mean, it, it won't cost people that can actually afford to pay a little bit more tax that mm. much. Mm. And I mean, 48 quid a week for someone who is. Uh, yeah, one of the sort of legions of working poor in this country. Uh, that's that's groceries. That's food on the table. That's food on the table for sure. Yeah. Good stuff. All right. Thanks, Graham. So moving on from uh, some of the poorest to um, among some of the uh, some of the wealthiest clients. Anyway, the big four. Um, they have decided to uh, quietly ditch the word clients for audited entities so this was a story from uh, one of our journalists mark taylor so uh yeah as i say it's it's um he had a bit of fun with this uh, he went sort of full shakespeare on us uh, what's in a name that which we call a client by any other name would still pay us handsomely so i think that this i think kicked off with the news that kpmg had uh, asked all their auditors to refer to uh, them as audited entities rather than clients. Um, and I think the rationale behind this, according to KPMG's UK chairman, Bill Michael, was that the auditor's true clients are shareholders of the company under inspection rather than the directors who appoint them. So yeah. it was just a sort of workplace terminology update. Yeah. I loved I loved the story. It's at, it sounds as if like they read 1984 and got completely the wrong message from it. It's like, yeah, you know what? Newspeak is a good idea, actually, and we're just going to do that now. We're going to implement it in the business. And if you just call it something, it's not that anymore. It's like, oh, cool. Mm. And I think with all the all the stuff that's been going on with the FRC's uh, abolition and the sort of proposed tightening up of these things, I, it seems like a, a, a real sort of under undercooked reaction. Yeah. As it were, yeah. It's you know, it. it uh, I I think this. It's times like this where the sort of like real corporate end of accounting, the line between that and politics really blurs. Mm. Where it's just all about optics, and not actually doing anything materially different. Just sort of labeling it as something else. So, uh, goodness, moving on then. The most read story on the site this week by an absolute country mile. It's uh, our dear friend Neil Warren uh, up in Manchester. He's written us a piece on the new rules for personal leasing contracts. So these are uh, the PCP and the the, um, personal contracts, not the drug. Yeah, Um, not angel dust, guys. (laughs) No, um, don't do drugs, kids. Um, I'm not sure any children will be listening to the podcast. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> if, if it is, it's, it's the it's the kid who like goes to school with a briefcase kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. If you're a kid, listen to this. Email us at no accounting for taste. Yeah. <laughs> NAFT. Yeah. NAFT. NAFT. Yeah. uk. Anyway, yes. Back to uh, back to the story. Um, so. Obviously, uh, many private vehicles are now leased under personal contract purchase, so PCP agreements, rather than being bought outright. This is, I mean, it's it's a huge thing now. It, it, it's gone from people uh, either saving up or taking out a bank loan to buy a car through to just renting it like your phone. And then you have a sort of option to, uh, at the end of your contract, to pay the remainder and, and have the car outright or move on to a newer model. So, uh, yeah, obviously um, the tax world's taken a little bit of time 
to catch up on this and uh, Neil just sort of takes us through in his in his inimitable style takes us through various examples of these new revised policies that HMRC have um, uh, implemented and it's yeah as I say a a huge amount of traffic on this um, on the site this week um, so yeah as I say do check uh, check that out links to all the stories will be in the show notes for this podcast let's take a quick musical sting after which we'll be magically transported to Milton Keynes and the company of Rebecca Cave see you after the break So thank you for joining us, Rebecca. Um, now, I know you are a big fan of ITV Breakfast Television, so you'll have been all over this uh, Lorraine Kelly story. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about the, the facts of the case? Well, actually, I've never seen Breakfast Television. <laughs> I have a very um, slim idea exactly who Lorraine Kelly is, but I gather she's a big star and she also advertises children's, no, women's clothes, mm. um, as well as doing all sorts of other exciting things. Um, but the point was that she's been a self-employed presenter working through her own company uh, since 1992, which is way before even the IR35 rules were introduced from April 2000. Mm. Um, so HMRC didn't challenge this arrangement um, at all for, for 14 years. Um, and then it suddenly picked up on the fact that uh, Kelly was the star of The Rain, um, a TV program which I understand is on in the morning mm. on ITV. Um, and she also had a significant role in a program called Daybreak as well. Um, now, this is only really part of the work that she does through her personal service company. Um, in the case report, it said that while she was producing, while she was the star of Lorraine, um, that work was only about 33% of the turnover of the company, mm. uh, whereas the, the short period when she was doing both programs, Lorraine and Daybreak, uh, which was more of a news program, uh, that increased um, her ITV proportion of her um, turnover in her company to about 65 66%. So really, she does an awful lot of other stuff other than present uh, Lorraine, um, and that was a key point in this case. Mm. But HMRC was trying to say that ITV had control of her, and a big part of that was the fact that um, ITV was the controlling uh, organization for the Ofcom regulations, mm. um, which was seen quite bizarre. Um, but when you looked at what was actually happening on the ground, um, Kelly decided what was being going to happen in the program, who she was going to interview, how long she was going to interview them for, uh, what features were going to be um, uh, broadcast as part of the program, yeah. what clothes she wore, um, practically everything. In, in fact, you know, she wasn't part of the team that produced Lorraine. She was the leader of that team. You know, so... <laughs> it was a very interesting uh, line in the uh, tribunal notes 
about the fact that that, that she was an entertainer and that yes. um you know she was very much a persona so she went on she yeah. whatever food she was eating or whatever clothes she was wearing she would generally be quite nice yeah. about it and and just portray this this sunny personality as it were but that wasn't actually who she was well, um, I think the whole business about whether she was an entertainer or not is a little bit of a red herring in this case because um, the entertainer argument was whether that she would be able to deduct a fee for her agent. Um, we all know certain people who might need a uh, dramatic agent. Um, well, of course, I've got two. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Um, but if the case determined that she was a self-employed individual anyway, whether an entertainment or a newsreader or whatever, mm. that whole business about whether she was an entertainer, in inverted commas, fell away. Uh, so although they discussed it as, at length in the case report, mm. it wasn't that significant to the actual IR35 um, employment status question. Mm. Um, so, and as in all these cases, when, when there are two things to argue about, the judge will go through the major thing, but he will also discuss the other thing, even though he says, well, actually this falls away, but I'm going to discuss it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, though of interest, yeah. um, to other, um, TV personalities who want to claim a deduction for their agent speeds, which can mm. be quite considerable. Yeah. It was not core to this. Okay, um, so I guess um, this this case is obviously of interest to um, several other uh, TV presenters who seem to have been caught up in this, uh, Indeed. embroiled in this IR35 um, uh, shenanigans, and I think uh, we, we covered the Krista Aykroyd case last yes, year. Yes, in fact, this, this Aykroyd case is referred to in this judgment uh, mm. quite a lot, and HMRC are trying to rely on the Aykroyd case mm. to um, boost their argument that Lorraine was merely a mouthpiece of the TV production company or ITV and, you know, they would control her, tell her what to do, etc. But that was really not the case. Ackroyd was quite different because she was a newsreader. She wasn't producing a more of a magazine program as Lorraine apparently is as a program. Okay. Um, So, uh, I guess... In terms of wider implications, I guess one of the one of the angles that um, I think you're likely to cover in in your piece is around the the assessment tool that you use to see whether you're um, within the IR35 purview or not. Well, indeed, that's not actually referenced in the case report, and um, there's no evidence that ITV used that assessment tool or otherwise right. decide whether Lorraine was. But if you try and put the facts of the case through the assessment tool, CEST, um, it, 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 it's difficult to come up to the, with a conclusion that um, HMRC did reach. Mm. Um, so I, I think, you know, that, that's a side issue. But this is a very strong case that goes through all the points of um, IR35. Is there a mutuality of op- obligation, i.e. are both sides required to provide the opportunity to, of work and complete that work? Mm. Was the control? Control was a very big argument in this this case. 
Um, and then you go through the other sort of provisions that you might see in an employment contract, like sick pay, holiday pay, pension entitlements. Was there any training given by the engager to the engagee? Were there any appraisals? Um, in this case, not. No training, no pension contributions, no sick pay, etc. Mm. And then financial risk, which I think is quite interesting here because HMRC was saying, well, Kelly couldn't increase the amount of profit that she was making from this contract. She couldn't work harder and produce any more, which, of course, when you're providing your time, no, you you can't, you know, make time go quicker and actually get more hours in a day. It's not yeah. possible. However, the judge said in this, yes, there was financial risk because the program could be pulled at any time. And then, you know, she didn't have control of that. Mm. And also, if she was sick and couldn't perform, she would not get paid. So she did have financial risk within that contract. Mm. Um, and also looking at all the other things that she did, you had to look at the, her whole um, work um, career, her, her whole uh, universal um, amount of work that she did um, to look at the overall view. And she does a lot of other things, you know, mm. other than the ITV work, which, which HMRC were trying to ignore. They were trying to just concentrate on the ITV work and say, this is an employment and all the other stuff that she does is self-employment. Well, no, you've got to have you've got to have a universal look at the you know what is going through the the company. Although in theory, yes, you can have an employment contract through your company, and other bits are self-employed. But you need to look at uh, what the the Lorraine Kelly brand was doing um, in her entirety of her work, which is what the judge accepted. Okay, wonderful. Well, um, thank you very much for, for taking us through that case. We're uh, very much uh, Lorraine on HMRC's parade, oh. uh, this, this case. So uh, oh, uh, thank you very much, Rebecca, and we'll look forward to speaking to you very soon. Okay, thank you, Tom. Thank you very much, Rebecca. We are back in Bristol and uh, yeah, they're still working on the building site outside. So apologies for any sound issues yeah. you may be having. I think the mystery beneath me is like what involves that amount of drilling. Mm. I, I'm not actually too sure, but yeah. Yeah, there we are. I'll um, let you know if they've discovered oil by the end of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel Day Lewis just marching outside. <laughs> We're rich. Um, yeah, so Richard, you have been working on uh, an extremely well read story. Um, this uh, this week. Um, yes. Can you tell us more? It's um, so late last year. There was um, a thread on any answers uh, posted innocently. Oh, how long did it take the rest of you to reach a hundred thousand turnover? And of course, it was a hugely popular. I think many people so this perhaps as like a competition in a way. Mm. It sounds like a great premise for a game show as well. <laughs> um, which. Um, yeah, shame we don't run with that as well. Maybe an idea for the future. But um, now that self-assessment season is completely out of the way, now people have this a little bit more time. Um, yeah, to focus on their practices. Yeah, a little bit more practice growth. They can maybe consider uh, maybe those that haven't reached 100,000 turnover level yet. Perhaps this is the time to um, strive towards that target. And so just looking through sort of the, the answers and speak with um, a few 
accountants as well off the site. It seemed like there was loads of different routes to be to get to this uh, turnover target, and also loads of different reasons why people want to. I think one of the clear reasons was just having that security um, when when you just launch off into your own practice and do it on on your own is having that security of not taking too much of a hit from your um, mm-hmm. your previous employed um, full-time money. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was plenty of different roads to get in there, including go get in a niche, focus on client service. Niching. We've had that debate before. The old niching debate. Yeah. Um, and also focusing, doubling down on marketing. All of these, of course, are key trends in the Accounting Excellence Awards, which I'm sure we're going to hear a little bit about later on as well. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, very interesting to see how people got there. But I think what we're going to find as well in a piece which we're going to follow up next week is once you hit that target, the difficult point then comes what you do once you've hit the target, how you get over <laughs> over that 100,000 bump and um, then get all the processes mm. in in order to um, just go forward. What I think is it. Accounting firms are kind of like any other business, and I think the UK has a problem with this in in that it's very easy to start a business, especially in 2019. You pretty much need a a laptop and a business bank account, and that's uh, that's 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 where you that's where you go. Um, So yeah, but 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 scaling up has always been a little bit trickier. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, like in that same vein, uh, Richard, when you were covering this, I mean, what what sort of dynamics were there in terms of people just saying, like, look, I just wanted to get to that point, and I'm happy to kind of just stay there. Well, some people even said that hundred thousand wasn't even something in their mind that they just wanted. They were more focused on work life balance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hundred is a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, one person in particular said that they started their practice nine years ago and have never come close to hundred thousand in fees as. They're one of those who would rather have extra free time than more money. And they don't want the hassle of employees or mm. an office away from home. So yeah. there, there is really 100,000. is not the be-all and end-all. You don't have to hit that target is mm. what another key thing coming out of this. Yeah. yeah. Great. Thank you again. Uh, you know, some really interesting comments, uh, both in the article and, uh, and underneath it on the site. Uh, Moving on then, uh, Fran, I think you covered it this week. It's just gone out in our business news email. Yeah. Another national minimum wage snafu. And another workwear controversy. Mm. Um, so this one relates to Staffline, which is, a, which is I think, the UK's biggest sort of like temping firm. Um, they're really big into sort of providing um, workers for like factories and, 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 and all kinds of industrial and quite lower paid applications mm. um, but they they got caught out um, after it's, it's, it's quite a lot of intrigue uh, in this one because it, it was a it was a it was a um, anonymous tip off to their auditor um, uh, that, that they kind of got things going and they suspended trading on on, on the aim uh, whilst they were kind of trying to figure out um, what uh, what was going on but the, so there was numerous accusations made the board has kind of been quite uh, has kind of denied anything else going going amiss, but they did admit to one fault, which relates to national minimum wage, and they've basically squirreled away three point five million pounds to basically pay for pay for this, and it relates to uh, workwear. Uh, so uh, it relates to like a number of food production facilities and the payment for preparation time, which is 
generally time spent putting on workwear, uh, getting ready, making yourself clean, obviously for like hyg- hygiene purposes and stuff like that. And uh, Alistair Kendrick makes this point that, um, you know, when you go to your food production site, you have to wear the, the special clothing and so on, and, and that takes time, right? So you, you might start work at 9.30, but you might have to get there at 9, whatever, and, you know, go through the preparation and stuff. And HMRC is very much of the opinion that that is working time. If, so, if someone is working in a shop and they have to go through security, they, they have to be mm. on the floor at 9.30, but they have to be there at 9 to go through all this process, that's working time. I know that uh, special investigation by The Guardian, I think on uh, Sports Direct, um, I think had employees, they, they, they obviously have big security checks yep. both, mm. both in and out to, uh, I, I guess we're out to make sure people aren't uh, nicking stock, etc. But um, they weren't counting that as yeah. working time. Mm. They, were on, they were on premises kind of thing. And, and, and um, Alistair said that one of HMRC's sort of very first questions when they carry out a national minimum wage inspection is when do you when do you um, arrive on the premises and when when do you leave um, and and basically then they they compare that to the hours paid mm-hmm. um, so yeah it's it's a it's a very interesting one and and and, and staffline is an interesting one because they were um, they are especially vulnerable to this one because obviously as a recruitment and, and the biggest kind of tamping firm they, they did this thousands of times over and yeah, just yeah. stacked up mm. um, you know, other businesses won't have a similar liability but it's definitely one to keep, to keep an eye out for mm, great thank you Fran so final story um, this is well it's another Mark Taylor story actually um, it is making accountants digital he's, mm. he's gone with that he's gone with that but uh, yeah it's basically uh, examining the legal and moral implications behind um, the latest productivity tool taken up by UK companies, personal identification microchip technology, um, chipping your workforce. Um, <laughs> it's being sort of billed, and, and, and I think it's it's worth pointing out that, that I think there's one firm doing it who have fitted literally 150 implants to volunteers um so (laughs) it's not um it's not a uh, a large scale thing as it were um but they the productivity benefits have been um you know given as as sort of cost savings by for example being able to sort of log in and log out without passwords or um identification um tracking of employees um no no need for id cards things like that mm. so yeah yeah i mean it it it, it has disaster just written mm. all over it to be honest like I, I i don't necessarily doubt the that the many different kind of like tech companies who are coming up with these chips mm. i don't doubt their like their intentions their intentions might be good but I mean, how it's applied in the real world would just be disastrous, you know what I mean? It's, That's like a counter-argument, Fran. Yeah. I am a very lazy man. Yeah. And the thought of just being chipped and then not having to worry about any passwords, having That's, to <laughs> worry about anything the thing like that, is, like, I'd be quite happy. So, so Chip me away. So with the... The, the end game, obviously, for, for people, for the companies creating these chips is for this to have mass adoption, right? Like that is, that is the vision that they have. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing it, right? They can say whatever they want, but I mean, that is it. They, they, they envision a workforce, um, writ large that has these things in them. And all of us have had terrible bosses in our lives. Now, can you imagine having just some kind of psychopathic boss who can track you? It's a, mm. 
It's a little bit of a scary concept. Yeah, I mean, interesting. I was um, speaking with the CEO of a large North European software house, who I, I won't name, but uh, he, he he was sort of saying their software has this um, uh, ability to uh, for employees to download an app which, with employees' permission, can track their location. And if you log certain places that, that can be deemed workplaces, then it will, it will automatically do your timesheet for you. Um, yeah. I sort of put it to him that that was a little bit creepy. <laughs> um, didn't, he didn't really seem to understand. I think his argument was that millennials... Are being know they're being tracked anyway, so yeah. they're not too fast. Millennials, yeah. they love being tracked. Yeah. <laughs> they love it. They absolutely love it. Yeah. The um, I mean, this is I. I don't know if there's any video game fans listening to the podcast, but there's there's a series of, of games called um, Deus Ex, and and it, it this whole episode kind of reminds me of it because it's it's all about the sort of implications of like what they call biohacking and like people augmenting their bodies with uh, sort of machinery and chips and bots and all this stuff. Mm. Um, if you're, if if this sounds quite interesting to you, if this titillates you in any way, you should check it. You should check it out. Well, I'm looking forward to the day when I look back at the end of my career and I'm going to be full of metal, like the yeah. Terminator, full yeah, yeah, of yeah. all these chips. Yeah, mm. just just two robotic arms. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Mark Mark, uh, Mark does mention uh, a chap called Dr. Kevin Warwick, um, who's a leading professor of cybernetics. He uh, implanted a silicon chip in his arm at Reading University in 1998. Um, as Mark says, um, although technically the world's first cyborg, Dr. Warwick did not attempt. To wipe out the human race, but instead suggested a more modest use of his newfound powers, replacing a payment card. Mm. So, well, yeah. this is how Skynet yeah. started. Yeah, Indeed. I mean, this, this whole world is pretty wild. Like, you, there's like these guys from I can't remember what university it was. They were called the the Cybernetic Research Unit, um, and they they've written also extensively about the implications of like biohacking. All mm. stuff. So yeah, you can really fall down a rabbit hole if you want mm. to. Indeed. Well, we, we uh, unfortunately we have no time to fall into any more rabbit holes um, for this week. Before we go, though, um, we have a couple of plugs. Sound the plug, Claxon. That was a bit quiet. <laughs> let's 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 crank up the plug, Claxon. That's not. better. Right. So two big plugs for you. Uh, first, we will be recording the pod live at Accountex on the 1st of May, our onstage debut, as, uh, as they say down under. Um, as well as the usual ramble through the world of Accountancy, we'll have some special guests, TBC. So if you're heading to the XL, then please come and find us. We are on at the How To Theatre at 3pm on day one. So that's 1st of May. Now... Not a little. Not, we're not worried that no one will turn up. <laughs> not at all. In in any not way. No. Um, so, but just in case, it would be really good if uh, all our listeners uh, showed up to the House Youth Theatre at three pm on day one of Accountex. Look forward to seeing you all there. Um, right. You've so, all been chipped. We know where you are. <laughs> <laughs> Second plug: the Accounting Excellence Awards are open. So, if your firm is doing some great work for your clients or his staff, um, hopefully both, and you're looking for a bit of acknowledgement, then entries are open until the end of this month. So check out the categories at accountingexcellence.co.uk forward slash awards. And that's it. Thank you very much uh, to Richard and Fran and to Rebecca. And uh, thank you very much to producer Balmy. 
Thank you. Who is chipped? Much. She is chipped already. <laughs> Are we? Yes. No. Yeah. Well, yes. She's she's nodding. Oh my goodness! We oh, put you on the pod. <laughs> <laughs> um, great. Okay. So uh, thank you very much for listening. For all your news for the big wide world of accountancy, we're accountingweb.co.uk. Bye for now. Cash Plus is a leading digital business banking provider already helping 120,000 businesses. It enables practices to open accounts for clients in minutes, as well as providing seamless access to data. For more information, visit cashplus.com.